My name is Becca McNeil. I'm a journalist and generally curious person wondering what's next for the group of folks affectionately known as the church. With sex scandals, megachurch meltdowns, and Trumpy troubles, are people giving up on Christianity or are there things worth holding on to? This is my podcast where we gather doubters, searchers, question askers, and healers to consider what's working and what's not in the faith traditions we grew up with. The goal isn't to find a new right answer or a how-to. The goal is to foster openness and curiosity, whether you believe it's time to build something new or burn something down. In this first season, we talk a lot about parenting. What do we want our kids to take with them? What do we want them to leave behind? We examine the role of parents, many of whom are grappling with their own spiritual questions as they walk with their children into this new day. celebrated my birthday over the weekend and that Happy was good. birthday. Thank you. It was a good birthday. I saw I had coffee with a friend and got together with some other friends and then went out with my husband and one of my sons. The other one, the teenager had his own stuff to do. But it was like, I don't know, it just made me like reflect on pandemic life. My birthday is like right before it all started two years yeah, ago and just yeah. how everything is not normal. Even seeing people, it's like People, some people I'm seeing are like barely seeing anybody still, which I understand yeah. if that's how they feel comfortable. And the people I do see are all really careful and vaccinated. I'm trying to be responsible, but it just doesn't feel normal. I don't think I have a problem with birthdays, but it makes me reflect on like where life is in this yeah. big way. Oh, I get in my head on birthdays. We, uh, Mine was actually January 31st, so right okay. before. And so happy birthday. Yeah, very similarly. Just got a little bit in my head about, I don't, it's not fun to try to plan things anymore because the anxiety and the buildup is yes. way too much. You're yeah. Like, yeah. Like my husband wanted to have a birthday party for me. Yeah. And I just was like, no, because everybody I get together with has understandably different comfort levels with all the stuff. And some people are really still worried about Omicron and I am, but I'm also like... I'm doing every, I'm doing all the yeah. things and I'm at a point now where I'm fortunate enough to be healthy and around other people who are healthy that I'm not terrified about it. And so right. I do cautiously spend time with people, but the thought of trying to host a party and make everybody comfortable. And I wouldn't have invited anybody that I knew wasn't vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> everybody I would invite would be, but, but it's just, yeah, but it's just like mm -hmm. the thought of trying to, to do that and make people comfortable is just too, it's overwhelming to me. And so I just was yeah. like, no, we, we had talked about going just to Austin with another couple friend, couple friends and getting like an Airbnb and just doing, you know, hanging out and whatever, being away from there in Houston. We're here in San Antonio, get pick a city where neither of us live and just go hang out yeah. there. And even that I was like, no, because in the days leading up to it, we are all doing the math. Okay, well, they can't go. Should we still go? They got exposed, but it was three days ago and they tested negative, yeah. but it really isn't. I was like, I can't do that anymore. I'm so tired. I'd rather just wait. <laughs> so. Yeah. But then yeah. The, just the waiting also takes a toll. So. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying things that then don't work, which I feel like waiting is in that vein of, okay, maybe now. And it not being now. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you're trying to get something done and it 
didn't work that time and it didn't work that time. Like I'm (laughs) thinking about getting rid of fleas on the dog and you're like, okay, we're going to try another thing and we're not going to work. That kind of fruitlessness drives me bonkers. (laughs) That's where I get, I become the worst version of myself. It's depressing because it makes you feel powerless. It makes you feel like you have no control over your world. And we all have to accept a certain amount of that is just being alive. But when it's something like taking fleas off your dog or having a birthday party, these are things you normally feel like you have a measure. Of I should control. be able to do this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting the so, anyway, that was my not at all peppy answer to how was your birthday? I don't <laughs> Sorry. No peppy answers required here. So my guest today is Sarah McCammon. You know her from NPR, but I'm going to let her tell you what you should know about her. Jeez, this is such a like existential question. (laughs) Who are you? Yes, I am a national correspondent for NPR. I have been at the network for close to seven years almost. It'll be seven years this summer. While there, I have covered generally a lot of political issues. I was initially hired as a campaign reporter and I spend a lot of time now covering reproductive rights and other stuff. I'm really interested in religion and politics intersections. It's not, it's never been my official beat, but it's always formed a context for a lot of things that I cover. And then I also do random things as a national correspondent. We all get pulled into covering breaking news and tragedies and things like that. So that's what I do now. Before that, I spent over a decade at mostly at three local NPR stations, affiliates around the country, and did a little tiny bit of print. Beyond that, I'm a mom, I'm married, I'm on my second marriage. And what else? I, yes, I grew up, I know we're talking about religion, so I grew up evangelical, went to an evangelical college, am now in an interfaith marriage. Does that give you the sense? That's great. That's not only does that, I think, give us a good lay of the land. I have about a thousand questions. So, and you can decide, like, I'm dying to know which evangelical college. I also went to an evangelical college. So I know about that kind which of, one? I went to the master's college, now the master's university. Is that in California? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And see, master's straddled that yeah. world between Bible college, similar to Biola, um, straddled between Bible college and liberal arts. You had some professors who were like, this is ridiculous. We need to be able to talk about this. It's a liberal arts education. And then the real Bible college ethos that is very locked down and not a lot of inquiry going on. Yeah. I went to Trinity in Chicago. There's two Trinities in Illinois, but this was a Trinity International University is what it was called at the time. Which okay, we, yes. No one wanted to call it that because it's such a like such an ostentatious name for a little tiny Christian college. But they but had some Ted's, kids from Canada. Yeah, Ted's like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School was the the seminary, which you know is well known in in the evangelical world. We were the undergrad for that in Deerfield, okay. Illinois. So evangelical free. Gotcha. Yep. Oh yes, I went to school with lots of evangelical free students. But it was very big in Southern California. We can, that, I think my first question was just to ask you if you're comfortable talking about how you grow up. I know that when you're covering these topics, and we can talk about this too, actually. When you're covering these topics, often you see the people who you would identify as, oh, those were my people growing up. 
where they are on different issues, different questions that you have for them as a reporter isn't necessarily maybe not where you are as an individual anymore, but also I have found there are, there's an array or a spectrum of how familiar it even is to the people I thought I grew up with. I think a lot of evangelical people who grew up in the evangelical world are having that strange moment of seeing, for instance, like the Trump movement and saying on some level, I recognize this and in other ways I don't. And would be super curious to hear your experience as a reporter bumping into basically your old world. Yeah, it's interesting because so I am 41. I was born like two weeks after Reagan was sworn in the first time. And so I'm like almost as old as you can be and be a millennial technically. You you and my husband are exactly the same. He's the same. He's like, I I got in on a technicality. Yeah, exactly. But it's an interesting, looking back, it's an interesting time to have been born. Like right at the beginning of that period of time. And I grew up in a home where it was very conservative, evangelical, very interested in evangelical politics. But the, I think the prevailing belief among the folks I grew up around was this, there was this sense at least that was you know, that we were outsiders or marginalized in some way. <laughs> and then to have it, see it all come full circle and just see the evangelical, white evangelical movement become so powerful is just not something I ever would have foreseen as a child. However, there was also a lot, there's so much you don't see as a child. And I don't think, I didn't understand the ways in which this was actually being very intentionally constructed, right? By, and and certainly we could talk all day about who's an evangelical, what's an evangelical, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But you and I, I think are basically talking about like conservative Protestant, predominantly white people yes. who would look up to a variety of leaders, including people like Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council in the political sphere. And to some extent, people like Pat Robertson and the Prosperity Gospel folks had some influence. There's all these different movements, but that's broadly what I'm talking about. The mainstream white Christian conservative world that had its own kind of subculture arise really in the 80s and 90s and really like yes. through my childhood this is all arising and I remember very clearly in 1996 the when Bob Dole was the Republican nominee hearing people like James Dobson of Focus on the Family they're being very vocal about how they feel like they felt conservative Christians were being excluded and marginalized in the Republican Party and didn't have any power and how they would threaten to leave although it wasn't clear where they would have gone and then I go off to college I grow up I, I'm on my own spiritual journey that leads me in my own direction and honestly was not thinking about a lot of that for a lot of my adult life. Always seeing these things through that lens and with those memories and with that understanding. But I am I was getting married for the first time, having kids, establishing my career. The first part of my career I covered stuff like water rights in Nebraska. So I wasn't thinking super hard about the culture wars or the religious. I just was and honestly I tried to distance myself from a lot of that because I needed to disentangle myself from and just be my own person. I mean, I really went into journalism out of, I think, mostly curiosity, wanting to be in a space where I could ask questions and listen to multiple perspectives and where that was encouraged. And whereas, again, not saying this is true of all evangelicals, but many of the spaces I was in, you talked about your 
your college experience being, you know, there being some people who welcomed questions and others who didn't. And that that was my experience too. Or even people who were very kind, supportive, loving adults in my in my youth, when I would go to them with spiritual questions, there was they would try to help, but there was a clear discomfort and a sort of boundary to what you were supposed to think about or ask. You're supposed to arrive at, at, you could ask, but you're supposed to arrive at a certain place. In a certain amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. And then many of those people, again, were very kind, but they just, they were so committed to their belief system that I think for them, too many questions were threatening or scary, or maybe they weren't threatening. Maybe they, they were just so confident in what they believed that it was like, why aren't you as well? So journalism for me was like, I, I didn't think about it consciously at the time, but in retrospect, it was an escape from all of that. It was like, okay, I've grown up in this very strict, confined world, Christian school, Christian college, very few influences outside of the evangelical community. And I was ready to just ask questions and learn things. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of questions in the back of my head about how the world really worked that I wanted to explore. And in, in, in journalism, that's one of the one of our sort of basic er- drives is to ask questions in a, in a way that explores, that's, that searches for truth. Not that we always achieve that, right? <laughs> but that's at least that's that was for me the lore. Yeah. And as I met as some of the best journalists I met and was mentored by, seemed like they were really willing to criticize anybody or acknowledge when someone did something well, regard or had a good point. Like yes. there was just a real sort of like intellectual honesty that was so exciting for me. On that, another inversion for me or kind of change in getting into journalism because I went into ministry right after college and all that and it flamed out spectacularly and then went into journalism and so for me it went from a thor- the predominant value being don't question authority to the underlying assumption being you absolutely need to question the person in authority like the person yeah. you question the hardest the answer you take you inspect the closest is the one with the that the person with the most power gives you or the establishment authority it's your obligation to question that yeah it's and it's Mm -hmm. very much there are people who get almost religious in journalism about that role versus coming from a world where the authority determined what was right like you didn't question it because the fact that they'd said it was all you needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. And that we could have a whole other sidebar conversation, which I know we don't have time for, but I think the thing that fascinates me about Protestantism broadly and evangelicalism specifically is this idea that we just, we interpret the Bible for ourselves, us and God. And tradition is really not part of it. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it is loosely, but you know, whereas Catholics have a whole really sort of robust tradition of tradition. Protestants and evangelicals don't in the same way. And so it's like, on the one hand, there's the sola scriptura, you and God and the Bible. But there are, as I was saying earlier, there are those boundaries. There are things you're just supposed to conclude, even with that being supposedly the guiding principle. You're supposedly you have the Holy Spirit who's helping you understand and interact with all this. As long as the Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to do anything that the Holy Spirit would never lead you to do. Which it seems to be defined as often that either you're not walking with God or 
you're not listening to God or something, if you come to a different conclusion than the leaders of your movement, whether yeah. it's your church or whatever tradition of evangelicalism you fall under. I'm not saying that people do this intentionally and all religions are subject to this. I'm yes. Not, I don't think evangelicalism is unique, but it's just, a, it's an irony given this emphasis on interpreting the Bible for yourself. Yes. I talked about this with Daniel Silliman, who's a journalist and historian for Christianity Today. He's their news editor. Uh-huh. And he was, we were laughing about the whole premise of this thing is that there's no gatekeepers. There's no, you don't have to have a seminary degree or anything. And he said, but in the absence of an official gatekeeper, you have a lot of people who want to stand up and volunteer as gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see the political arena becomes really handy when there's no, like when there's no Pope to keep his power, even if he opposes Trump, you do see a lot more like people trying to find a hierarchy. The Republican party became a very useful thing for evangelicals to try to get their values institutionalized. I have been asked, and I'm sure you as well have been asked a hundred trillion times why evangelicals like Trump so much. And going back to to something you said earlier, like in a way it surprised me in a way I could see it because I think it surprised me because I also, not to rehash what we've all said a hundred times, but it surprised me because I did also watch, I was, I was an older teenager at the time of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. And so I remember how the leaders of my community, the national leaders responded to that with such disgust and understandably, Mm -hmm. you could, you might say that kind of behavior was a clearly unbecoming of a president, whatever you think about it morally or whatever you think about his politics, it was unbecoming behavior. But then to see the same behavior, at least tolerated or very similar behavior on the part of President Trump was, that was surprising to, I'll be honest, it was surprising to me at times. Mm -hmm. It was surprising to a lot of people I interviewed, but it also, the rise of Trump was also unsurprising in other ways because of, I think, the way in which evangelicals thought of themselves as underdogs and as marginalized and as on the outside. And so here was someone who, whatever else you may think about him, he did make promises to evangelicals and he clearly did a good job of assessing what their priorities were and he delivered on many of them. He really did follow through on many of the things he promised. So, you know, when you look at Yes. Yeah. So when you look at it through a sort of pragmatic transactional lens, it, there's the, that's the logic to it. As you've, I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times. It's, yeah, it's the conversation we've all been having, but I think in hat, like each time I have it, some little thing will pop up. The thing that keeps, that you're bringing up and Adam Serwer brought this up too, that the construction of being marginalized this, because I grew up with this too, this belief that the liberal elite, for lack of a better term, not even for lack of a better term, that would be the term. The liberal elite is thinks that we're bumpkins. They think that we're simple. They think that we're dumb. And there was like a, it's actually a really compelling coalition builder this like we're the underdogs and i think it it struck something really deep in the heart of people the american mythology about scrappy underdogs who founded the country and scrappy underdogs who did all this stuff settled the plains and then 
because you, then you see someone like George W. Bush come along, who is Yale educated and incredibly wealthy and legacy politician, but may, but used, creates this folksy persona to become this underdog character. Like they would say every man, but I would say it's almost trying to tap into that underdog feeling. It's actually an identity thing. It's not even a, I looked around and I assessed who was taking us seriously and how much power we had. But if you go to like the national prayer breakfast, I have a hard time looking at who's in that room and seeing that as the most marginalized crowd in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember who it was who said, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I've heard it said that essentially evangelicals looked at Trump and said, sure, he's a bully, but he's our bully. Yes. You know? Yeah. I think Adam Sir and that is not like that. Yeah. A couple people have said this. And I, I think, I think that kind of it, evangelicals wanted somebody who would fight for them. Exactly. And, but What's fascinating, it's always been fascinating to me about that is that belief that you need someone to fight for you and that you feel on the outs when the facts don't line up to that. Oh, it was such a shock to me to grow up and discover that we were really arguably the largest religion in the country, really rivaling Catholicism, depending on whose numbers you look at. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm not even talking about all of Protestant Christianity. I'm talking about evangelical. And I think that because the institution or whatever, the group that my people who raised me would point to would always be Hollywood. They would always point to the people making the entertainment as the proof. Like they are so liberal and look at them. And that's the proof that we're not in power because they don't make movies that reflect our values. And I, I think the 80s made it so simple, it could boil it down to queer identities, working women. It's where you get these social flashpoints, because as mm-hmm. those advanced, you could point to that as evidence that our agenda is losing. And like powerful people are on the side of women in the workplace, for instance, and all of that. And I remember my my parents were big into like boycotts and stuff because of liberal agendas. Mm-hmm. And so it's been fascinating. And I would love to hear your experience of this. Joining the liberal media in so <laughs> many ways. My, my parents, I think the Trump era changed their mind in a lot of, for a lot of reasons. But the people I grew up with, me even writing for things like sojourners or relevant <laughs> things that are not the liberal media for them was basically saying like i've joined their oppressor like they very much view this as someone as institutions like hollywood that is antagonistic and that continues to keep fuel their vision that this is the underdog in the fight. Yeah. I, number one, I haven't directly asked my parents what they think about what I do. They've given me some feedback, good and bad over the years, generally unsolicited in either case. But I, 
I, I will say when I was first becoming interested in journalism, and I have to credit my dad, my dad actually cultivated that interest. When I was in high school, he took me to the Kansas City Star, which was our daily newspaper where I grew up. And, and I was fortunate that the star had a teen page, teen section, no longer, but at the time. And, and he encouraged me to get involved in that. So for all four years of high school, I was to varying degrees involved in writing articles or advisory board for the section. And, and, you know, I don't remember ever really having, certainly I grew up hearing about the quote unquote liberal media and my, my parents listened to some NPR, but more to Rush Limbaugh and Christian radio and Fox news was fairly about, those were the earlier days of Fox News right. as I was in high school, but that was starting to come into the home. But we also watched Sunday morning talk shows, political roundtables, and I heard a really robust exchange of ideas on those shows. And also, importantly, saw women in those roles, which I think that in is a, was, yeah. was really important for me to think, oh, this is something that I could do because most of the women in my community, at least, were stay-at-home moms or teachers. There were women who worked, but not really career women. They work because they have to. They worked because they needed to. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't something that was, it was always explicitly, I'm not even, I'm talking in some cases here about implicit messages, but it was a very explicit message that like the woman's role is to be at home with the children and you should have a marketable skill, quote unquote, was what my mom in was saying. In case said. your husband you dies. A, or in case you don't get a husband. <laughs> and, but it was never like, it was never like something you would do because like that would be a really important part of your life. It would always be secondary to some other goal. My mom really wanted me to work for World Magazine. She really wanted me to work there. And I just, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. Like from a young age, I knew that. And I'll say World has done some, I think, really admirable investigative journalism looking at corruption and abuse within the evangelical world. I admire and respect those, that reporting. It just, again, was not where I saw myself. I wanted to go work for a newspaper like the Kansas City Star. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. For me, it was like the questioning and the freedom to question and the imperative to question. Mm -hmm. Others have said a really great exercise in not centering their own views and having yes. to go and write a story that maybe the main character doesn't, you don't agree with them, but to honor that position, present it fairly and present it as a, a true position that people hold. It's, it is true that people believe this. And not yes. weigh in on, is it objectively capital T true? Like the right. discipline of not doing that. And it was in addition to what I said earlier about having the space and the sort of encouragement to inquire and ask questions. It was uh, on the same token, it was a space where there was no shame. In fact, it was a virtue to not have made up your mind or to be uncertain or to feel that there was more to be learned. And I think that was for me, when I was an evangelical, I think that was one of the most exhausting things about being evangelical was this intense pressure to feel a certain way, to believe a certain way. And as much as I wanted to, because I was, I was a good, dutiful, straight A firstborn child, <laughs> you know, we I have wanted lived to parallel I, lives, Sarah. <laughs> I wanted to check all the boxes really badly. Like I was not a rebel at all. Right. But at the same time, it's, and there, and maybe you want to talk more about this, but there are certainly values from my upbringing that I still appreciate. But there were other things that I just felt this pressure to have a certainty about, express a certainty, project, perform a certainty about mm -hmm. that I just didn't. And I tried really hard to, to get there, but I couldn't. I've said to someone before, I think it's, I think faith in a way is like love. If you have to try really hard to work it up, 
it probably means it isn't there, which isn't to say that you can't have a form of faith that's full of doubt and uncertain and into mystery. I, I think you can, and I think that's probably more my faith now, but that kind of faith, that kind of be- belief, maybe. Yeah. I think assertion of belief. Yeah. I think that there were times when I was arguing so heatedly and so passionately because I was needing it to be true. If this isn't true, then my whole thing falls apart. And that's just not a good place to be in from a spiritual and faith perspective to feel so fragile. It's actually a kind of, and which makes sense when we're talking about this feeling of being marginalized. If one little crack makes the whole thing fall apart, yes, you feel vulnerable and under attack all the time. Why do you think, I have my own answers, but can I ask you a question? Yeah. (laughs) Why do you think that, maybe this is true of of all religions, but why do you think there is such an intense, uh, fear, I think, on the part of many evangelicals, uh, and not all, mm-hmm. not all, but if we're both expressing this feeling that we both have. Yeah, I think it's pretty common. Of, of, of everything falling apart. Like, what's driving that fear? I'll be so interested to hear your answer as well. I think part of it is messaging. messaging. I think that the people who need the evangelical institutions, plural, to survive, need us to feel like they are essential. And so I do think that there's a lot of overt messaging about if I go down, you're going down with me. And if we allow one little, people have said this about seven day creation. Mm -hmm. If we say that the first two chapters of the Bible aren't literally true what else falls apart after that and so i think that when someone in authority tells you that rather than saying there is a way to read the first two chapters of the bible in a way that opens us up to because how you read the first two chapters does inform how you read the rest of the bible but instead of saying hey it's okay that it's mysterious and our faith is flexible and open to that, people in charge of the messaging have said, it is essential that this be true so that the resurrection can be true and so Mm -hmm. that everything else can. And I think there's been an unquestioned premise every time somebody lays on another piece. Right. I think that the benefits to certain pastors and politicians, this is a really cynical answer. And I, (laughs) but I think that the benefits to certain politicians and pastors aren't really felt until several layers up in that certainty thing. And so you got to keep it all building so that you get to the point of you need to be tithing, you need to be voting, you need to be spending your money this way, upholding these values. That's my theory. What's yours? Yeah, I think you're. I think what you're speaking to is the fact that there are people who benefit from yes that fear, um, and I think it, you definitely have a point. I, I I guess I was thinking also about just from an internal perspective why you know mm-hmm. of course there's the fear of getting it all wrong, being judged by God, angering God, all of that, which eternal hell. That's Yeah, a scary thing. And then I think more practically, like for me, a lot of it has been just the loss of 
frankly, culture and community. Yes. You know, it's because it's so baked into everything that you do that when you question even a small piece of it, it destabilizes. It can destabilize your relationships with lots of people. And there are many people who will see it as a rebellion or Mm -hmm. as a shocking, and I'm not even talking about like, leaving Christianity altogether necessarily. Oh, I I grew up Presbyterian. So going to a different kind of Presbyterian church was like. (gasps) Yeah, I'm talking about any anything from a small disagreement to completely leaving the church, like anywhere Mm -hmm. on that spectrum, depending on who you're talking about. It can have real repercussions for relationships. And I think that for me has been the most difficult part is that in order there have been many times along the way when in order to feel like I was being true to authentic to just how I saw the world, how I, when I thought about things and looked around and learned as much as I could, not everything matched up with how I was raised. And that isn't meant as a personal attack on my mom and dad or my pastors or my teachers or any of those people, many of whom are wonderful, kind people and who did many wonderful things for me. I have to live in this world as me. Right. (laughs) And I can't spend my life pretending to be someone I'm not or to think things I don't. And, and unfortunately, and again, I don't think this is unique to evangelicalism, but I think that often maybe particularly in certain strands of evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. there are real consequences for any kind of um, dissent. We'll be back after this short break. If you could only eat one kind of candy for the rest of your life, what would it be? Chocolate particular kind? Hershey Kisses. Hershey Kisses is Hershey bars. All those kind of chocolates. What, why is chocolate better than all the other candies? Because it, it's more yummier. It doesn't get stuck in your teeth. That's true. Gummies get stuck in your teeth, don't they? One of the most interesting things in talking to people about their journeys when I was writing my book was how I finally narrowed it down to like doubt, hurt, and disgust as the reasons people had stopped identifying 
as evangelical or change their faith from something conservative. I talk to a lot of conservative Catholics as well, Mm -hmm. because I feel like the Catholic church is actually in through a similar season of things being exposed. And it's amazing how quickly the doubt and hurt get mixed in because they express a doubt and the response from their community is depending on what it is that they're doubting the response from the community is then hurtful. Yeah. And so then they feel alienated. And I agree. I think that it's, it is scary. I mean, I'm doing a lot of therapy ahead of releasing this book, (laughs) just getting ready. (laughs) And, and like you, I have covered abortion some, and it was a nervous moment publishing. I did some work for the Texas Tribune when Texas went off the rails And just publishing very gentle, very factual, very even-handed journalism about it, I knew would be perceived as antagonistic because I hadn't come out with here is why this is what will destroy America. And Mm -hmm. I felt not going to battle one of the battles that they wanted me to go to, even though everyone who knows me knows there's been a journey and knows I don't hold hardly any of the same social stances that I used to. I still worry. Like when I saw certain friends or my parents shortly after those stories came out, just was like, Oh, so nervous about what this conversation is going to feel like. Yeah. What's the title of your book? Bringing up kids when church lets you down. Cool. It's it's not out till October, so there'll be some time. Yeah. But talking about that, because even though it can feel like your doubts and your questions lead the community, lead you to a break or a distance from this com- certainty-based community, the whole theme of this podcast is a new day and where is this mm-hmm. heading? What can we take from the things that nurtured us and grew us and then the questions that we started asking in your profession to build a new day. And what does it look like to move forward for you? Yeah, I guess I'll just want to quickly go back to something I said a moment ago about how I haven't shifted my religious beliefs or practice because I want to poke a finger at somebody or I'm, or I think less of it of somebody. It's because I'm trying to be my, trying to be true to, I'm trying basically not to live a lie. Right. The same is very much true with my parenting. And this has been, I think, a really hard thing about being on a journey my whole adult life <laughs> is, and also I had kids quite young. So I was mm-hmm. not at a place, I was at a place where I was really kind of working through, I think, some trauma when I had my kids. So I have raised them. I've baptized them. I've taken them to church some, so much less than like my parents would want me to. <laughs> but I haven't raised them with a really certain kind of religious approach. So when they ask me a question, I don't think I can assert to them something I don't, I can't honestly say that I know because the idea of hurting or lying to my own children is just, that's not something I can stomach. And so if I'm going to be honest with anybody, it's going to be with my own flesh and blood. I've talked to other people who, people I'm close to from my childhood who've said, ah, sometimes I worry, am I not giving my children enough guidance? Are they going to go to hell because of me? You know, we have these things in the backs of our minds. And yet for me to pretend to be someone I'm not 
I, I don't, I can't do it. I, I hear myself talking and I sound like the same kind of humanist I was warned against, I guess. But, but you know, I, I am who I am. I don't know how many to directly tie to evangelical faith versus my particular parents or whatever, but I, there are things I take away. And for one thing, I think I was, I was raised with a really profound sense of duty and responsibility, a sense that we had obligations to one another to try to take care of ourselves and our families the best that we could. And that might sometimes be rooted in a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thinking that I wouldn't fully embrace today. But I do appreciate like kind of the work ethic that I was raised with and, and the sense of not just working hard, but also like showing up to everything with integrity and honesty Mm -hmm. and doing your best, you know, bringing your best self because you know, there's this, uh, this idea that, you know, you want to glorify God in everything that you do. Right. And so what that translated to in the real world was that you have an obligation Mm -hmm. when you go to school, you have an obligation to listen to the teacher and to study hard and to turn your work in on time and to do what you say you'll do, you know, Mm -hmm. to follow through. And I'm not saying I embody all these things perfectly (laughs) all the time. But these are still values that I hold. I really try to let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right. I try to keep my word. And I'm, as you know, including scripture here. I don't claim that these are unique to evangelical or Christianity. But um, that's the, the source that you're drawing on that's to where get they come from. that value for you. For me. Yeah. Yeah. And also this idea of loving your enemies and turning the other cheek, one that I really struggle with, but one that I think is really beautiful and closely related idea, the idea that there's dignity in every person is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk to my kids about these things and I don't say them like this is an actual fact down to the bottom of reality, but I say this is a value that I was raised with that I really believe in. I believe that God <clears throat> loves all of us. I believe that God cares about all of us and that every person, even if they've done terrible things, that no one is is beyond love or redemption or, or value. Right. And do I really believe that no one's beyond redemption? Probably not, if I'm honest, but I want to believe that. I think it's a beautiful idea. And I think that, you know, we would have a much kinder world if we really did try to see every person with eyes of compassion and and, and empathy and forgiveness and hope for redemption. I find that hope for redemption has changed my journalism. Like when I was able to kind of bring together this... I started journalism in a place where I was pretty angry at Christianity and really wanted something that just felt totally separate. But as I started to kind of heal and bring them back together, the ability to say, to look at people and their stories as being my sources, being people who are made in the image of God and the stories that we were about as being fundamentally hopeful and not to, not to make them happy ending stories, but Mm -hmm. to kind of buffer some of that cynicism that comes in and wants to just make everything a little bit gory and a little bit bleak. Yeah. To kind of change that. And I have found that it has made me connect with sources better because I'm not as hostile of a presence. I think early on I could have been a little bit hostile in like I'm here to expose your evil, which actually is <laughs> more in keeping with part of um, the doctrine of sin that I'm trying to kind of walk away from. 
like this belief that people are fundamentally evil. I actually mm -hmm. behaved more like that when I was trying to be just a pure journalist. And it wasn't until I started recovering some of this Christian ethic of the image of God that I was able to approach people more as people. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Would you be up for talking a little bit about being in an interfaith marriage? I had another guest recently who said he'd been told every faith is an interfaith marriage. If you <laughs> take this, if you take the approach that we are on journeys and uh -huh. that changing and questioning and mystery is a lot of this process that really are any two faiths really the same, but I'd love to hear more about yours. My husband is a reformed Jewish and I, I, first of all, need to disclaim to anything I say about Judaism or reformed Judaism is just filtered through the lens of what I've observed. And I'm still learning a lot about it. So I'm in no way an authority, but one of the things I've really loved about learning more about his faith is just, there is a really deep emphasis on questioning. And I think many Jewish people would affirm that because I've heard more than just my husband say that. But there's this long tradition of interacting with the text and arguing about what it means and questioning what it means and trying to understand it better. And it's seen as a really, again, from what I understand, it seems to be seen as a really productive and valuable process and not a bad thing at all. Whereas coming from a tradition where questioning was really kind of a little dangerous suspect, territory. <laughs> yeah, it's so refreshing. And it's, it's also been really interesting for me as someone from a Christian background to go to synagogue and see how, how many traditions we, we have modeled after Judaism. I, I have to say, I, I, I knew that, but it's, I had, I'm embarrassed to say I'd never been to synagogue until, until the last few years. And it's, there's so much that I recognize in the rhythms and the recitations. And it's, I feel like it, it's, it's just fascinating to learn more about obviously Christianity derived so much from Judaism. That's been an eye-opening experience for me in, in a lot of ways to just appreciate it even more how much it wasn't original. Yeah. <laughs> so much of our faith. But seeing that connection, when you see the themes, like I remember growing up and we would hear things about like the Epic of Gilgamesh and they'd be like, they must have somehow stolen it from the Israelites. And like when there would be these themes, people would bend over backwards to like, this to say that this doesn't mean that Christianity isn't the one true religion, but right. the more I've been open to it and just seeing the universality of human spirituality and science is yeah. even getting in on that now that yeah. we have parts of our brain that are activated as responding to spiritual things. You, I think you do start to loosen the, I've it's made me loosen my grip a little bit on this yeah. exclusivity part of it. Oh, for sure. I am not an exclusivist. I'm just not. And I haven't been for a long time. But I I think, yeah, for example, going to synagogue with my husband on Yom Kippur and thinking just, I don't know, we talk in Christianity a lot about repentance and, mm -hmm. and you know, getting your heart right with God. But there's and again, I'm not an authority on, on this, so I, I am, I'm hesitant almost even to speak to it. But just hearing some of those same themes through a different lens, through a different tradition, and a tradition that's so old, so yeah. deep, has it, it's, it was very beautiful and really healing for me because I have my own complicated feelings about my own religious upbringing, and yet it's such a part of who I am that for me, being in a, in a relationship, I'm really grateful that my husband is from a Jewish family, from a, tr a faith tradition that 
has given him a whole sort of spiritual language and religious context, because Mm -hmm. even though they're different, I think it helps us understand each other in a lot of ways. And it, it's it's a different language, but it's also a shared language in, in certain ways too. If that makes sense. Absolutely, I think there is a there's a certain amount of resonance if we allow it to happen. The one of the things that being certainty obsessed kind of steals, I think, from the joy of being human is that ability to resonate with people who you don't necessarily like your propositional truths all don't line up. That was such a prerequisite in my most certainty based religion days. We needed to like, make sure these things aligned and then we'll see if we feel the same way about faith Mm -hmm. or we experience the world in the same way. If we even got to that, it was mostly about making sure that all of our facts lined up. And one of the beautiful things about taking a more spiritual or questioning or not needing to be certain is that you can find that shared awareness and shared sense of grounding and place that comes from religion and religious community um, and connection to generations past. That's huge. I, I see exactly what you're saying. What do your kids think about, the whole thing. They've been really open to it and really, I think, welcoming. You know, we've had the privilege of celebrating our holidays together. They've been to at least one Passover Seder now. And and of course, my husband joined us for our Christmas celebration. And, you know, I... Let me try to think how to say this. I think for them, they're still just being exposed to things. And I think that's, I'm happy for that, that they, you know, are able to understand that different people have different traditions. I think we're all kind of trying to make sense of the world. And to, to me, that's like the biggest function of religion and spirituality is it's a way of trying to ask the questions like, the ultimate questions, you know, about why we're here and what we should be doing while we're here. And again, going back to being in an interfaith relationship, that's something that I'm really grateful that my husband has a language for and uh, a rich tradition to draw from, because I think it's something, it's something that I, I learn from. And, and I think I can never get away from those kinds of questions being really important to me. Right. And I think that I'm thinking back to different dinner tables I've sat around and groups I've found myself in where the person I'm drawn to is the person who's asking those questions, whether or not they're asking them for the same reasons or coming to the same conclusions I am, but there is something that is very comforting to me and I think this is from being raised this way with those things always on my mind that there's other people who have that same need mm-hmm. and that I don't feel like I'm being the buzzkill or the like, <laughs> Oh, she's going way too deep, way too fast. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, I think this is one thing about being raised like we were, if you're a kid who took it really seriously. Yes. Cause there are certainly those who, 
did it and oh, yeah. unperturbed, and that's fine. That's fine. In fact, I'm envious. I'm so envious who are of the kids who are unburdened <laughs> by the need to reconcile all this. But if, if you grow up with like this really like every single day, every single book in your house, every TV show you're allowed to watch or not allowed to watch, school, church, all of it filtered through this very earnest lens of we have got to figure out what truth is and we have got to manifest it in our lives every day Mm -hmm. and we've got to get it all right because there's so much at stake here um it's i think it's impossible not to be a buzzkill kind of person because you just you know you just are trained to be concerned with those things yeah and i'm not sad about that i think that we are at least (laughs) as far as we know only on this planet once, or at least yeah. in this form, only once, yeah. and for a short period of time. And so I think that it is, those are really huge, important questions that we should be asking. And if you mm-hmm. don't ask them, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that makes us human is to ask these questions. Now, yeah. sadly, I think we we tend to, because they're scary and important and big questions, there's a tendency to insist that our conclusion is correct. I'm not saying that it always comes from a bad place, but I think it's it's maybe one of the downsides of that human tendency. But I think it's a really beautiful human tendency. And yeah. I think that, like you, I'm drawn to people that, that want to ask those questions. Yeah. I'm, I think there are people who their just personal disposition leads them to take it more lightly and maybe be more satisfied with an answer once they get it and to not Mm -hmm. need to like re-question and rehash. I think you're right that to never ask those questions or to never need it answered would be, would seem puzzling to me. Yeah. (laughs) I I think everybody probably does it on some level. On some level. But yes, the people who are really over there worried about it are totally my people. The people who are like in the corner of the, of the party clutching their glass of wine and talking really intensely. Those are totally my people. And I think that the next level of that, then the place where I want that conversation to move for us is how can this curiosity, this desire for more, better, more satisfying, deeper answers lead us to more freedom and more connectedness rather than more isolation and more Mm -hmm. hostility. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's and I think that's where like journalism and parenting and interfaith friendships and close intimate relationships are actually incredibly helpful because it starts to make you make you need to like vibrate in sync with different things than you're used to just finding like these are the few people that I can harmonize with and everybody else I can't. And when you yeah. have to there starts to, I think you start to see just how big, how much room there is. Yeah. I mean, well, journalism has definitely opened me up to lots of other experiences and ways of being in the world. And I am grateful for that. I I also think maybe this is what you're saying, but I, I think parenting does that in its own way because suddenly you have to imagine the world through, you know, the eyes of some little person Mm -hmm. that isn't you, but is like you in in alarming ways sometimes and unlike you in perturbing ways. And and yeah, it does open you up. My husband has a son who's really into sports and he was marginally interested in them, but became way more interested in, you know, got it. You you get into things 
for your child as a way to as a way to connect with your child. And you see things about the world that you're like, oh, I want you to have a different relationship to that than I had. Yes. Like, I don't want you to be scared of that. Or I don't want yeah. you to have to carry that anxiety. And so I think that for me was a big part of this was being like, oh, I've come to an uneasy piece about some things, but I want you to have a more joyful experience of it. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time yeah, and the conversation. It's fun to chat with you. Huge. Thanks for the buzzkill conversation. <laughs> no, <I> love, <laughs> no, that's the thing is that we're those people. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were encouraged, challenged, or something in between. If you didn't find the answers you'd hoped for, my goal is that at least you might have felt like someone else was asking the questions you're asking. Please share the podcast with your friends and check the show notes for more information about my guest. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Moira and Asa, for supporting the podcast with their humor, and Lewis, my husband, for running to get my power cord every time I forgot it downstairs. Music is by Andy Slatter, Pink Zebra, and Color Film Music. Thanks for being patient with my little in-house production. I know there are a lot of sound and editing imperfections. I'm learning as I go. So thanks for hanging in there. Have a great new day.